I'm speaking on the subject, brokenness for America. <clears throat> That's why we didn't sing the national anthem. I just felt like we need to humble ourselves and be sedate and prostrate before the Lord today. I won't read all the verses that we read responsively as Brother Chris led you. I'll just highlight a couple of verses from Joel chapter 2 and then read the familiar verses from Second Chronicles 7. Would you look at verse 12 of Joel chapter 2? Therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning and rend, and I think you know that word means tear, and rend your heart and not your garments and turn unto the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth or relenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. And then we recall the familiar and similar words of Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, part of the prayer of Solomon at the dedication of the temple. If I shut up heaven, that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, God is speaking, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Words directed to Israel, and I'll say more about that. We need to be careful how we apply those words and call America a covenant nation. It is not. But there are so many parallels. I want to focus on them today. The sins of America have become so glaring that it's tempting and it's easy for us as Christian citizens to play the blame game and direct our indignation toward the other guy, the liberals, the ACLU, the progressives, the modernists, the secularists, the cancel culture, the woke crowd, the perverts, the globalists, and on and on we could go. But could I ask a simple question? What about us? What about us? Are we complicit with the sin of America that is even now causing God to remove our defenses and incur His wrath? Could I put, put it another way? What is in your heart this morning if, if God were to break it open? I read a true story this week. <clears throat> you might think it's a little bit on the sentimental side, but I think it will prepare our hearts for the message. True story about an eight-year-old boy that was facing serious heart surgery. And so the surgeon met with him beforehand and for the pre-op appointment, and the surgeon said, tomorrow morning I'm going to open up your heart. And the little boy said to the surgeon, well, when you do that, you'll find Jesus there. 
And the doctor continued, well, I'm going to open your heart and, and check to see what the damage is. And the little boy kept saying it over and over. You'll find Jesus there. The doctor ignored him and went on and said, and, and then I'm going to suture you back up and we'll come up with a plan of what the next step will be. And the boy expanded a little bit. He said, well, you're going to find Jesus there because my Sunday school teacher told me so. She said that it says that in the Bible. Besides, we sing a song in church that says, He lives there in my heart. The surgery took place the next day. and After the surgeon began to make notes, after the surgery, he began to make notes of what he found. And he was sad because, humanly speaking, there was no hope for this boy. There was no cure. He knew that within months, this little eight-year-old boy would pass away. And he got upset about that, the doctor. And he actually, he was alone, but he shouted out to God and said, Why did you do this to this boy? Why can't he live a normal life? And God seemed to speak to the surgeon's heart and say, That boy is a part of my flock. He'll always be a part of my flock. Because he knows the shepherd. And when he's with me, there will be no more suffering and pain. He will have comfort and peace, and one day his parents, as well as you, will join him, and my flock will continue to grow. The next day, the surgeon went to the little boy's room, and he sat down with the parents beside the bed. In a moment or two, the little boy opened his eyes, and he asked very quietly, Doctor, what did you find in my heart? With tears flowing down his cheeks, the surgeon said, I found Jesus there. And I ask you this morning, if the alabaster box of your heart were broken open, would it emit the fragrance of Christ? Would it reveal his compassion to a broken world? The same world that crucified him and continues to spurn his mercy and trample upon his grace and reject his truth. It's easy to play the blame game. But I ask you this morning, who will enter into the passion of Christ for lost, doomed sinners? We need to be broken. You know, God delights in broken things. Jesus uses broken things. Just a cursory glance through the Old Testament. Remember those pictures used by Gideon and his band of 300 men? What a curious armor that was. What a curious set of weapons. But it worked when those pictures were broken. And they shouted, the sword of the Lord and Gideon, and they triumphed over a host that vastly outnumbered them. I think of Jacob, who was made lame by the angel with whom he wrestled by the brook. And lest you think that he was the one that was stronger than the angel, no, the angel touched him in the strongest muscle in a man's body. And from that point on, Jacob limped. 
He was a broken man. But the lame take the prey, don't they? I think of that woman that I referred to with the alabaster box who broke it open and anointed Jesus' feet with that expensive perfume that cost a year's salary. And Jesus memorialized her. God delights in broken things, but especially broken hearts. The sacrifices of God are broken in a contrite spirit. O oh God, thou wilt not despise. O oh God, thou wilt not despise. There's an immediate threat here in Joel chapter 2. It's, the setting is, there's an imminent invasion of locusts, a pest. We don't know exactly when this took place, but it's accompanied by drought and famine. And the prophet Joel is doing two things in this minor prophecy that bears his name. He is calling his people, his countrymen, to lament and to turn to the Lord. And secondly, then he gives, even in the same chapter here, chapter 2, he gives some glorious prophecies about God's purposes of grace for his people. And although America is not Israel, and I'll emphasize that several times, there are certainly some striking parallels here to the situation in which the church finds itself today. When I think of those locusts, the church is being invaded by foreign parasites that are sapping her strength, sucking out her vitality. Heresy and worldliness and political correctness from the culture are just pressing in on every side. The found, I can't believe the changes I've seen in my lifetime. The foundations of the church are being eroded out from under us. And if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? There's increasingly a famine of the Word of God. Oh, if you look in, on the website for Baptist churches in Raleigh, you'll find scores of them. Some of them, you'll hear the whole counsel of God. Many of you will not. That's true of many other evangelical churches. And the Bible speaks of a day in Amos chapter 8, verse 11, when there will be a famine, a famine not of, of bread nor of water, but a thirsting for water, but a famine of hearing the Word of God. Very few churches declare all the counsel of God and do not pander to the changing culture around them. So this is for us. Does Joel chapter 2 have relevance to us as American Christians? Yes, I think so. In two ways. Number one, God's calling His people to brokenness. God is calling His people to brokenness. There in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, that familiar verse 14, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves. And here in chapter 2 of the, of the prophecy of Joel, speaking of my holy mountain, and all the inhabitants of the land. It's directed to Israel, and we know that Israel was God's covenant people. That's true in the literal original context. As we go back to Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, the phrase, which are called by my name, actually means upon whom my name is called. 
God put his own name upon the descendants of Abraham. He changed the name of Abraham's grandson here, Jacob, to Israel, which means prince with God. The children of Israel became God's covenant people through whom all nations of the earth would be blessed as God promised Abraham early in his life when he left Ur of the Chaldees and at God's bidding went into a land he didn't know where he was going ended up in Canaan. Our text, therefore, is a covenant promise specifically for Israel. I know that. I don't apologize for that. Jehovah gave Israel His righteous laws. Israel was to have a theocracy, that is, God ruling directly over them. And in America, we make a big mistake when we try to impose a Christian society upon this country, imposing God's civil laws upon our nation. Uh, Listen to me very carefully. America is not God's covenant people. The new world in which we live and which was conquered and discovered many years ago, the new world here is not the promised land. Abraham Lincoln is not Moses. And our country's founding fathers wisely recognized this and created by our Constitution and even the documents that were the forerunners of our Constitution, they they created not a theocracy. They had seen that. They had seen in, in Europe, they'd seen state religion. They didn't want it. For a while they had it here. Maryland was Catholic. Virginia was Anglican. Pennsylvania was Quaker, but you can thank God that somebody had enough forethought, including a lot of Baptists, to say we're going to have to have a a First Amendment, we're going to have to have a Bill of Rights that guarantees no state church. Have you thanked God for that? And our, our founding fathers wisely crafted a representative representative democracy, a constitutional republic with three branches of government so there would be a built-in set of checks and balances. Why? Because they wisely understood that man has a sinful nature. They didn't buy into all this spark of divinity stuff. Israel was God's covenant people. Believers today are the salt and the light of the New Testament age, and we read about those expressions in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes when Jesus said in verses 13 and 14 to His disciples, "'Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. And then he went on to say, Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they, the men, may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven." So Christians are not God's covenant people like Israel, but we are salt and light wherever God has placed us. And what does salt and light do? It preserves. It influences. It leads. It purifies. The Bible says in 
Proverbs 11, verse 15, when it goeth well with the righteous, the people rejoice. That's all the people. Let me tell you what, America is impacted by what Christians in America do and how they behave. God always works through His people. They are a key to His implementing His sovereign purposes in any society. In some cases, that means that He will allow them to suffer with the guilty or to be severely persecuted even to the point of bloodshed. And so I say without any hesitation, and I hope you'll remember this, Beloved, the hope for America, humanly speaking, is not in the chambers of the Capitol. It's not in the Supreme Court building, though we applaud several decisions lately. It is not in the Oval Office of the White House where the President signs bills into law. The hope for America is in the pews of Bible-believing churches just like this. I recall the familiar words of the French writer Alexis de Tocqueville, who upon visiting America in 1831 famously wrote in his book, Democracy in America, and I quote, you've heard these, I know, but let me say it again. Tocqueville said, I sought for the greatness of the United States in her commodious harbors, her ample rivers, her fertile fields and boundless forests, but it was not there. I sought for it in her rich mines, her vast world commerce, her public school system, her institutions of higher learning, and it wasn't there. I looked for it in her democratic congress and her matchless constitution, but it wasn't there. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because America is good, and if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. That was the unbiased opinion of a man who visited this country. Let's take those words to heart. As the church of Jesus Christ, we need to lead the way. And especially do we need to lead the way in humbling ourselves before God, who has blessed this country like no other. We need to lead the way in pointing others to Him who alone can preserve and deliver us. Secondly, I want you to see from this passage, it's a striking parallel for the church, how this brokenness will manifest itself. How this brokenness will manifest itself. What are the effects of God's grace when we get right with Him? Well, as you look at um, Joel chapter 2 again, maybe you're in Matthew 5, but let's go back to Joel chapter 2, look at verse 12. God says, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. Do you know why God has preserved our nation with all of its faults? and blind spots, and sins and failures for 246 years, you say, that, well, that's not till tomorrow. No, it actually is 246 years yesterday. We celebrate the fourth. It really happened on the second. You know why God has preserved our nation with all that, and it's still a superpower? I'll tell you why. It's because at crucial times in our nation's history, there have been a faithful remnant of God's people who have humbled themselves before Him and entreated God for our land. 
Did you know that there have been 134 national calls for prayer, humiliation, fasting, and thanksgiving issued by presidents since George Washington in 1789? The wording of them is very touching. The constraints of time forbid me to read many, just a couple. But I hope you'll catch the tone of humility, brokenness, and contrition that comes through so clearly used to. John Adams, our second president in 1798, gave a call to humiliation and prayer, and he said this, and I quote, I recommend that all religious congregations do with the deepest humility acknowledge before God the manifold sins and transgressions with which we are justly chargeable as individuals and as a nation, beseeching Him at the same time of His infinite grace through the Redeemer of the world freely to remit all offenses, to forgive, and to incline us by His Holy Spirit to that sincere repentance and reformation which may afford us reason to hope for His inestimable favor and heavenly benediction. Can you imagine that coming from the Oval Office today? As I said, Adams was the second president of our country. It's very interesting that Thomas Jefferson, the third president of our country, who was a deist, broke from the tradition of Washington and Adams and did not issue a proclamation for national humiliation. He interpreted the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment to rule that out. He coined the expression, the separation of church and state, in a separate letter to Baptists in Connecticut. But even Thomas Jefferson clearly stated that this power to issue prayer proclamations should rest with the states. He was not opposed to the idea or the need for it. James Madison, the fourth president, the architect of of the First Amendment, reestablished this tradition of Washington and Adams, as have most of the 45 chief executives since then. Probably the most familiar, perhaps the most moving, is that issued by President Abraham Lincoln during the darkest days of the Civil War. I'm not one that says I think Lincoln was a Christian. But I sure wish some president would say this today. He made a proclamation on April the 30th in 1863 in the midst of the Civil War, and part of it says this, quote, And inasmuch as we know that by His divine law, nations like individuals are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world, may we not justly fear that the awful calamity of the civil war, which now desolates the land, may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins. To the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people, question mark. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, in wealth, and in power, as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. 
It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Now, therefore, I do by this proclamation designate and set apart Thursday, the 30th of April, 1863, as a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer. End of quote. That has been the God-honored, time-honored tradition of our presidents of the past, leading the citizenry into a basement of self before God. Do you think it's any coincidence that God has mercifully hearkened and been entreated again and again and preserved the United States of America through war and drought and disease and plagues and financial panics and depression and attacks of terrorists? Sadly, we're in a new era. We still have national days of prayer, but no longer is the word humiliation attached to it at all. But we've offended God more than ever. And so Christians need to lead the way. And, and how are we to, to humble ourselves? We're to do it with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Not too long ago, I... <clears throat> preached on occasions for fasting. I've done that several times in my 22 years as pastor here. We noted how in the Bible, God's children have fasted for different reasons. Sometimes they fasted to find out why God withheld a blessing, like in the time of David, uh, why God was withholding a blessing. And God told David, it's because you broke the league with the Gibeonites. They had to make that right. Sometimes in the Bible, men fasted to ascertain God's will for their families, as in the book of Ezra, for the nation. Sometimes they fasted to obtain victory over sin and over enemies. Sometimes they fasted to obtain the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And that's the case here in Joel chapter 2. I think there's a definite connection between the fasting that takes place, as it's mentioned in verses 13 and 14, and what is prophesied in verses 28 and 29, quoted on the day of Pentecost by the Apostle Peter. If you look at verse 28, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids, the lay people in those days, will I pour out my Spirit. I'll just ask you, when was the last time you heard of any church in America proclaiming a fast to obtain the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit? It's not even on our radar screen. We're to do it with fasting. We're to do this with weeping. I believe that today is in Ezekiel's day. God still marks those who in the words of Ezekiel 9, verse 4, still sigh and cry for all the abominations that are done in the land. I believe that God does what David said in Psalm 56, verse 8. He puts all of our tears into His bottle. One day He's going to pour them out in blessing over our head. You know, we get our emotions all twisted. And we weep when we should laugh, and we laugh over things that we should weep over. You tell me what, what, what makes you laugh, you tell me what makes you cry, and I can pretty well tell you what kind of a Christian you are.
We're to do it with fasting. We're to do it with weeping. We're to do it with mourning. We're reminded of Jesus' words in the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's not enough to mourn over lost loved ones. Uh, That's pretty natural to do. That's natural sorrow. It's not enough to just mourn over calamities that befall us, but I urge us to mourn over our sins. That is genuine repentance. And the prophet said here, inspired of God, tear your heart not your garments. The oriental custom to show grief was to wear sackcloth, to tear one's garments, to put ashes on the head. If you did that, everybody knew what it meant. But God says, I don't want just outward signs of repentance. I want you to have a broken heart. God aims for the heart. You know, we can sing great songs that are technically perfect and aesthetically moving, but if they do not come from the heart, they will not move the heart. I'm a music major. I didn't plan to be a preacher. I planned to be an advanced man for some evangelist and handle the music. God never opened that door, and I'm thankful He didn't. I have very conservative standards for music. We have had them from the start here at Friendship Baptist Church. I don't apologize for that. But if there's been one grievous fault in much of our fundamentalism that opposes ostentation and sensuality and style in our music and holds the line about traditional music, listen to me because everybody needs to hear this. Often we are content to just be conservative and traditional, and we don't have the Spirit. Paul said, I will sing with the Spirit and I will sing with the understanding also. The temple musicians were filled with the Spirit when they sang. Heman, Asaph, and Jeduthun. Do we pray for that? We need to humble ourselves. We need to show our brokenness in our intercession. Verse 17 Let the priests, the ministers of the altar, weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord. This is a prayer. Give not thine heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? May I remind us that if you're a a Christian, you are a king and a priest unto God, as the Bible says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. And the manward work of a priest is to intercede. We cannot mediate for sin, sinners. We cannot atone for sin. But we can intercede. God's people, through their intercessions, are the key to preserving the lost around them. I don't know if we realize that. You remember what happened with Abraham? One of his weak moments spiritually, though he was a great prince with God, great man of faith, father of the faithful. But in one of his weak moments, he lied about his wife, Sarah. He said she was his sister because he was afraid of a heathen Philistine king by the name of Abimelech. So Abimelech took her and was going to add her to his harem. And God said, you better not, you're a dead man. And even the weak, compromising Abraham 
Until he interceded, God shut all the wombs of Abraham's family. Abimelech, I'm sorry, Abimelech's family. A weak Abraham had to intercede. We're the key, folks. I don't care how weak or how strong you feel right now. We're the key to God preserving the lost around us. We need to show our brokenness in petition. I'm not trying to be technical, but there's a difference between intercession and petition. This is brought out even more clearly in 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14, where it says, if you not only humble yourselves, but seek my face. Seek my face, God says. That's more than just seeking God's favor and blessing. We are to seek God Himself. And that's what I'm afraid we haven't gotten to in America. We've gotten caught up in the crusade of trying to restore certain things outwardly, token acknowledgement of God in the public square. And I'm all for putting prayer back in the classroom. And I'm all for putting prayer back in the commencement exercises. And I'm glad that coach got vindicated by the Supreme Court that he could pray after the football game. I'm thankful for all that. I, I want the Ten Commandments put back in the courthouse. But listen, folks, are we satisfied with that? You know what that is? John McCarthy was right on when he said, restoring Christian symbols to public places is only cosmetic. It's like putting makeup on a harlot. That's pretty strong. God doesn't want something cosmetic. God wants our hearts. Son, give me thine heart. And if we're broken, and if we want our hearts to be right with God, we're going to not be so concerned about prayer being absent in the classroom as we are prayer being absent in our hearts and in our homes. I want to ask how many of you even have a time of prayer with your spouse every day. I don't want to embarrass you. But anything less than importunate prayer is just playing church. It's just rearranging the deck chairs on a sinking Titanic. And the final thing I'll say, and I'll leave with you before we dedicate a child today, is if we're truly broken before God, there will be resignation. And this is something you probably haven't heard. Would you look at verse 14 of Joel chapter 2? It's so clearly brought out. After Joel says, rend your hearts and not your garments, turn to the Lord. Verse 14, who knoweth if he will return and repent or relent and leave a blessing behind him? even a meal offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. The participant used to be able to, the, the offerer used to be able to participate in that when they offered the sacrifice. Who knoweth? I'll be honest with you to, uh, this morning. I do not know if God will send another gracious awakening to America or not. He's sovereign. He can do whatever He pleases. When He pleases with whom he pleases, 
and give account to no one. Oh, it sounds good, and people buy the books and buy the videos when some prominent evangelical leader says, God spoke to me, and we're going to have revival. And it says in Isaiah, they'll say that there's going to be an end-time revival right before Jesus comes. Could I just go on record as saying that is dangerous and preposterous and creates disillusionment and ruins credibility? What is the right attitude? What we see here. Who knows but what God may be entreated. If we reverently investigate the Scriptures, we'll see that God is more likely to pity us. Are you listening? God is more likely to pity us when we have no strength and we plead with Him to vindicate us for His honor and not our own. That's what I want to leave with you today. Would you take your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 46. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 46. This has been a great blessing, this verse, to me in recent months. I hope it will be to you as well. Deuteronomy 32, verse 36. For the Lord shall judge. And would you put beside in your Bible, if you have the King James rendering there, judge. That word judge means vindicate. For the Lord shall vindicate His people and repent Himself for His servants when, here it is, when He seeth that their power is gone, and there is none shut up or left. It didn't say when they get enough faith to say, let's take back our country from the liberals. America is a Christian nation. Let's take it back. That's not the attitude God's going to bless, folks. But when we see that our strength is gone, and instead of pleading our piety, we plead God's pity. Along with that, we need to plead God's honor against wicked men. I find myself often pleading the words of David in Psalm 119, verse 26. It's time for thee, O Lord, to work, for they have made void thy law. Lord, vindicate your honor. You see what they're doing? They're trampling on your majesty and your grace and your honor. We don't know what God may do in America. It looks dark. It's getting darker. We dare not direct the Spirit of God. But we do know this. He will honor brokenness. Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. That's always true. So I leave you with this statement. Until either Jesus or revival comes first, let's weep on. Let's weep on. Shall we pray? Father, would you break our hearts over our country today and let it come out our eyes. Help us to heed your call to fall. 
Forgive us for our apathy and unbelief. Oh, help us not to be satisfied with superficial things. Oh, God, open our eyes to see that the plague is already broken out among us. It's infected our children. It's infected our grandchildren. Some of them are already casualties of the culture. Oh, God, who will stand in the gap and intercede for the land and cry aloud and spare not? Would you make us oblivious to what others think about us? If we're worried about our image, we'll never make, be fools for Christ's sake. Please help us. In Jesus' name, amen.